Welcome to series four of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts, now embarking on a journey through the 33 cantos of the Purgatorio, the second cantica or section of Dante's great poem, The Divine Comedy. We've just emerged from the long descent to the bottom of hell as described in the Inferno, a descent that took 24 hours and then the equally long climb back up to the surface of the world. We're now in a completely different place, and our time in purgatory will will show us a lot of suffering, but completely different from the suffering in hell, which comprised pain without hope, in a world of complete self-centered discontent, dark, stinking, clamorous. In purgatory, by contrast, there is sunshine and fresh air and courteous conversations. Come along and see what it's about. First, a word about what purgatory is all about in Dante's Christian myth. I say myth because obviously this is not a depiction of any kind of literal truth about what happens to us after we die. It's a story that employs unrealistic details to provide us with images describing truths that are deeper than any literal account could give us. And here we have one of the great myths, not so much about what happens to us after we die, but about what we are like while alive. That's what myths show us. The Inferno gave us images of what our soul is like when we sin, that is, when we act only for our own ego. Giving in to passions we know are wrong, for instance, is like being subjected to swirling winds, out of control, round and round in circles. Living a hypocritical life is like walking around endlessly with a painful leaden cloak around our shoulders, beautiful on the outside, but heavy and making us miserable. Now, in the Purgatorio, we see something different. Here, in the myth, are the souls that have died in a state of grace. That is, no matter how much they may have sinned in their lives, they have turned at some point, even at the last moment, back to God. They have repudiated their egocentric life. They are saved souls. But they do not go immediately to heaven. They need to get cleaned up. Specifically, they need to wash away the stain of sin. The damned souls in hell are suffering because of their bad actions. The saved souls in purgatory are suffering because of the effect of their bad actions. Purgatory comes from the root word purgo, which means to wash. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, one of the first things Dante does when he comes to purgatory is to wash his face, a foretaste of what this whole long poem will entail. So that's the myth about the afterlife. How does it apply to our lives now? Well, here's how I think we can see it. We are watching the way we can heal our innermost selves, The Purgatorio is all about voluntary suffering, conscious suffering, as we let go of the pleasures of the ego. A painful business, as you can imagine, but in the end we regain these pleasures in a new, transformed way. We are transformed ourselves, in fact. The images in the poem help us understand these stains in our own soul and suggest, metaphorically, what we then do to wash away those stains. 
Purgatory is pictured as a towering mountain, higher than any other mountain on earth, rising up beyond the clouds, beyond the effects of weather. It is, in Dante's mythical landscape, placed in the southern hemisphere, exactly opposite on the globe to Jerusalem. The ascent up this mountain is, at first, hard going. Dante feels heavy and moves with great difficulty. But as he goes higher, he becomes lighter, as more and more of the dross of his soul is let go. But, you know, there are many other ways to read Dante, and it's impossible to include them all in something so humble as a podcast. But this mythic reading is what I want to try to focus on as we go through the poem. It seems to me a profitable way of reading, paying attention to the details of the poem and letting the poetic details bring out the meaning for us as we then connect the reading to our own experience, within ourselves or with others in our lives. So if this seems good to you, come along. There are lots of rewarding experiences ahead of us. And now let's begin with Canto 1. The Inferno ended with Dante and Virgil emerging back up to the surface of the earth, looking up to see, at long last, the stars, the clear heavens above. Purgatorio begins with a fuller picture of the heavens, but first, before the actual narrative begins, Dante gives us a short introduction. We get the image of a ship. That is, his journey down and up is like a ship, that he is sailing, or rather his narrative of the journey is the ship, the little boat of his genius, or poetical talent. The ship, the story, has now left the cruel, rough waters of hell, and is proceeding on smoother waters, because now he's come to what he calls the second kingdom. First hell, and now purgatory, the place where our souls are cleansed in preparation for their final end, which is the ascent into that third kingdom, heaven. And he invokes Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. Dante knows the high calling of his poetry, and he knows the conventions. You call for inspiration from above. The task is more than your own genius can handle. In fact, it's part of your genius to know its need for higher help, for inspiration, if the poem is not going to fall dead and dull from your pen. Okay, that over, we start the story. Dante and his guide Virgil come up from below, seeing the stars. It was night, but it's quickly getting near the dawn, and the sky is sapphire color in the east, and the air is clear and healthful. Up above is the planet Venus, the goddess of love, in the zodiac sign of Pisces. That's in the east. Turning to look into the southern sky, Dante sees four stars, seen only in the southern hemisphere, bright and sparkling, so as to make the sky itself seem glad. We'll discuss in a minute what these stars might signify. And then Dante turns again and becomes aware of someone standing right there beside him. A solitary and venerable-looking man with a long beard with white streaks and long hair coming over his shoulders and down his chest. Dante is facing north now, and the man is facing south, so that those four stars are gleaming on his face, making it shine like the sun. The man speaks first, 
accusing them of trying to escape from hell. What are you two doing here, escaping from your eternal prison down there below? Who led you up here along that hidden stream? Did you break one of the laws binding the damned souls? Or maybe there, maybe there was a new decree made in heaven that let you get out of that place? A whole array of questions, and Virgil knows what to do. He motions to Dante to show some respect to this man and bow down in reverence. And then he answers the man, I didn't take this initiative on my own, but I'm doing this at the request of a lady from heaven who commissioned me to lead this man along this journey. He's not yet finished his life, though he was coming close to his end through his folly. My mission was to save him from that early death. Going down through hell before coming up to this place was the only way to save him. And so I've taken him through the region of the damned, and now I'm getting ready to show him the spirits cleansing themselves, the ones under your charge. It's too long a story to tell you all we've been through, but be assured that we've done it with divine assistance. I hope you'll welcome him here, since he desires liberation, that precious thing that you know so well, since you gave your life for it back in Utica. And here Virgil has given us the clue about who this man is. He's the reverend ancient Roman Cato of Utica, who had killed himself rather than lose his liberty to Julius Caesar. More of him in a few minutes. It's not clear how Virgil can immediately identify him, but he does. Virgil goes on, trying to win Cato's favor. We haven't broken any of Hell's laws, since this man is still alive and thus not subject to the rules of the afterlife, and I am not confined in Hell proper. In fact, I belong to the circle of Limbo, where your beloved wife Marcia is. For her sake... Let us proceed up your mountain, and when I get back to Limbo, I'll tell her about how kind you've been to us. Oh, yes, Marcia, Cato replies. She meant so much to me when I was alive that I would do anything for her. But now that she's dwelling down there below, thoughts of her cannot move me any more. That's one of the laws around here. But on the other hand, if, as you say, you've been sent on this journey by a lady in heaven, there's no need for any of your flattery. It's enough to ask me in her name. So, yes, proceed up the mountain. But first, go down to the shore of the island and pluck one of the reeds there to tie around his waist, and wash his face, which is far too filthy from you-know-where, and his eyes are too dimmed, and he has to be in fit condition to appear up where he's headed. So go get that reed, and then come back here, and the sun, which is soon rising, will show you the way to proceed. And then, having said what he has to say, he vanishes. Dante stands up, amazed. Wow, what was all that? Dante goes closer to Virgil, who now leads him down to an open space as dawn begins to break. The dew still lingers there because the sea breeze keeps the air cool. Virgil bends down and wets his hands in the dew. This is a, this is a touching little moment, and Dante raises his face, stained with all those tears and all that grime, and Virgil bathes his face and restores its color. Then they go to the shore, and Virgil plucks one of the reeds growing there, and ties it around Dante's waist. 
And to their amazement, just as that reed is plucked, another one instantly appears in its place. And that's the end of the canto. This first canto of the Purgatorio can be divided roughly into three sections. Well, four, if we count, as we must, the opening twelve lines, which introduce the new canticle and invoke the aid of the muse. And then there is the scene at the shore, with the description of the sky and all its significance. And then the encounter with Cato, which takes up most of the canto. And then back to the shore again, so Dante can have his face washed and can receive the reed belt. Let's first consider the sky. Some people are surprised to see the value medieval writers place on astrological lore. These writers used it, though not for cute horoscopes, not for divination. The diviners we saw have their place among the fraudsters in hell, with their heads twisted around backwards. No, as we saw with the figure of Dame Fortune, and as we will see as we proceed here, the medieval cosmology saw providence shaping events on earth through the agency of the stars. The earth is in the center, surrounded by a series of concentric spheres, each sphere ruled by one of the planets, the medievals called them stars, and so each of the planets in the heavens can represent some aspect of divine influence upon us here on earth. Uh, <laughs> I'm grossly oversimplifying it here, but you can see how, in this world view, astrology provides a range of colorful and multi-layered poetic imagery. Look how it works here. The opening of the Purgatorio shows us a sky full of propitious meaning. Looking towards the eastern sky, Dante sees that Venus, the embodiment of love, is in the zodiacal sign of Pisces, the fish, fish being one of the common images for Christ. So it's not just any love, but divine love, both our love for the divine and the divine love and concern for us. When the sun rises, as it will very soon, it will be in the sign of Aries, the first sign of the zodiac, signaling a new beginning. Turning to the southern sky, Dante sees four stars, which he says almost no one has ever seen, because these stars appear only in the southern hemisphere, and, they believed in Dante's time, there's no human habitation south of the equator. The, the one exception was Adam and Eve, who would have seen these stars, because in Dante's myth, the Garden of Eden is located, as we'll see in a while, at the very top of this very mountain. But Adam and Eve, as the story goes, were driven from the garden and somehow transported, somehow transported, to the northern hemisphere, unable, like all of their descendants, to see these bright stars anymore. Dante doesn't identify the stars, but we can pretty certainly understand what they stand for. They represent the four cardinal virtues, fortitude or courage, prudence or wisdom, justice or right proportion, and temperance or balanced living. These virtues, the poetry suggests, were innate in Adam and Eve when they were created, but since their expulsion, we have been widowed from them, as Dante puts it, in the sense that they are no longer innate within us. 
we have to nurture and develop these virtues. And they're not exclusively Christian virtues. They can be attained by everyone, most notably by the great Romans, of whom Cato is a prime example. And this is what Dante encounters in his first moments in Purgatory, the guiding virtues of fortitude, prudence, justice, and temperance. Now, who is this Cato who so suddenly appears? Dante's looking up at the sky, and then he looks down, and there's Cato standing right next to him, a venerable man with an air of moral authority, not hostile, but not what you could call friendly. He has no time for pleasantries. His job is to instruct Dante and Virgil on what is required of them at this moment, and once he does his job, he disappears. His presence inspires respect, even reverence. The first thing Virgil does when he recognizes who it is is to signal Dante to bow down, not just as a gesture of respect, but also, we can see, as a, as, as a symbol of humility, the great virtue that pervades this whole region. But who is Cato, and why is he here? Well, he's never named, but we are given enough details that we know it's the famous Marcus Portius Cato Uticensis, who lived in the first century BC at the time of the collapse of the Roman Republic, of which he was a dedicated defender. In particular, he opposed the growing power of Julius Caesar and fought against him in the Roman Civil War. But when Caesar's army was victorious in northern Africa and nearly the whole region submitted to Caesar, Cato killed himself after having spent the previous night reading Plato's discourse on the immortality of the soul. So Cato was a suicide. But, but wait, aren't suicides punished in hell, in the circle of those who were violent against themselves, like Pierre de la Vigne, who killed himself? Well, apparently no, not necessarily all suicides. Dante feels more modern in his ability to judge characters by the values of the world they belong to. In Christian terms, suicide is wrong because it's taking into our own hands the power of God to determine when our lives end. It's denying the possibility that God can turn whatever evil we're suffering into something good and useful. But the pagans did not recognize such a divine arrangement. When they committed suicide, it was often, as in the case of Cato, for honorable reasons, for the sake of some ideal, rather than as an escape from life's misery. Thus Cato's suicide can here be seen as an affirmation of the ideal of liberty. He died rather than submit to what he regarded as the tyranny of Caesar and he died in the belief in the immortality of the soul. He was not trying to abolish himself, but acted in the faith that he was transitioning to a higher state. There is some disagreement about whether Cato is a saved soul, or whether he has been called out of his home in limbo to carry out this task, and will, will rise no farther up the mountain and up to heaven. I tend to think he's not saved, in the sense of going to heaven. He's not light enough. He shows the moral integrity and virtue of the souls in limbo, but not the joyful spirit of the saved souls. Dorothy Sayers comments that, in contrast with the saved souls we'll meet from here on in, Cato lacks the intensity, the exuberance, and the courtesy which are the marks of those in grace. 
He is, in a word, ungracious. He is a moral imperative, founded in duty rather than in love, a preparation for penitence, but not penitence itself. And penitence is what it's all about here. But there's still the question of what Cato is doing here in Purgatory. He seems to be the master or guardian of the whole place, but he also seems to be located only here, at the point where people come onto this mountain island. And he seems to be on the watch for anyone who might be arriving illegitimately, a kind of border patrol. He is thus a soul given a job, though he's not like the mechanical functionaries we saw in hell who were not human but hybrid monsters or demons. Cato is stern, as he always is in history and legend, but he's human. And we'll see him again in the next canto. On the mythic level, he takes on the role of the guardian at the gate, that figure that mythic heroes encounter just as they're about to enter into the strange new land of their adventure. The guardian at the gate challenges the hero to test whether the hero is worthy of proceeding. That's just what Cato does, although it's Virgil, not Dante, who assures him that the hero is worthy because his journey is commissioned by the heavenly lady. Then the guardian at the gate shifts into the helper and shows what has to be done next. Let's go back for a moment to Virgil's long speech, which is about 32 lines, explaining why he and Dante are there, and giving a brief outline of what they'd gone through in the Inferno. Here's the great Roman poet addressing the great Roman moral hero. And in his elaborate speech, he tries to offer a kind of incentive, a bribe almost, remarking that he shares his eternal home in limbo with Cato's beloved wife Marcia, and promising that if Cato will let them proceed, he, Virgil, will tell Marcia how kind Cato had been. This sort of appeal worked most of the time in hell, except in the very depths when nothing moved the worst souls. And nothing like this moves Cato either, but for a different reason. The law that governs his position here at the foot of Purgatory forbids him to be moved by any such appeal. Those former human ties do not extend up here. And like all pious Romans, Cato places obedience to holy laws above private emotion. In fact, it's a lot easier than Virgil had imagined. All he had to do was mention the heavenly lady and the path would be open. There's no need for flattery. That kind of thing does not belong to this new world. Cato's instructions are to go down the slope to the edge of the sea so Dante can get washed and receive the reed belt. Obviously they're going to have to go up the mountain, but not directly. When they go down rather than up the mountain, it's reminiscent of that first canto of the Inferno, where Dante, lost in the dark wood, tries to ascend the hill in front of him, but is prevented by the three wild beasts. Virgil appears and says that the only way out of the dark woods is downwards, specifically down through the depths of hell. And now Dante's first action in Purgatory is not to ascend the mountain, but first to go downwards, down to the shore, to wash and rebind himself in the reed of humility. We might, we might remember that Dante had given up his belt earlier in the Inferno when Virgil asked for that rope around his waist, which he then threw over the cliff as a signal for Geryon to appear and then carry them down to the next level. 
it was as though Dante were then giving up that symbol of self-control, making himself vulnerable to what he was about to see. But now he needs a new belt in place of the knotted rope, the straight and supple reed, green with new life. And as if to confirm this vibrant symbol of new life, the reed miraculously grows back as soon as Virgil plucks it. This is, I suppose, the power of humility, as we pick ourselves up over and over and start once more on our journey into new life. So far this region of purgatory seems pretty quiet, even deserted, except for Cato. But things change in the next canto, where we'll meet again.